everyone to Decisive Point, the new podcast series for the U.S. Army War College Press. The Decisive Point gets to the heart of the matter. We offer interviews with some of our most distinguished authors. Today I have with me Michael Eisenstadt and Dr. Kenneth Pollock. Together they've authored an article entitled Training Better Armies. This article appears in the 2020 autumn issue of Parameters. Currently Mike is the Con Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy where he is also the Director of Military and Security Studies Program. Ken is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. His latest book, Armies of Sand, was published in 2018. Welcome to Decisive Point, Mike and Ken. Thanks very much for having us on. Good to be here. So tell us about your, how you became interested in the topic of training better Arab armies. I'll start by saying that, um, like Mike, I've been working on Middle East military issues for over 30 years. And this question of why the Arab armed forces have so consistently punched below their weight, why they've had so many problems in modern combat, has been a critical element of the military balance in the Middle East ever since. But early on in my career, uh, Mike's as well. The real issue there was well, how do we, the United States, take advantage of their weakness uh, to better defeat our Arab adversaries? In the last 20 years or so, that's really changed. And these days, it's much more about how do we help build up our Arab partners? How do we help them overcome these problems so that they can become stronger militaries and shoulder more of a burden that we no longer want to bear? For me, the um, kind of the the impetus was an article that Ken and I wrote about 20 years ago titled Armies of Snow and Armies of Sand, the Impact of Soviet Military Doctrine on Arab Militaries. And one of the things we did, we looked at the Egyptian, Syrian, and Iraqi military um, and to the degree to which they implemented Soviet doctrine. At the time, there was a bit of conventional wisdom that the reason why these Arab militaries often did not do very well was because of the dead hand of Soviet doctrine. But we actually found that they implemented Soviet doctrine to different degrees, and they actually did relatively well when they combined the best of Soviet doctrine with their own um, homegrown approaches. And at the time I concluded, hey, this has implications for U.S. security force assistance. But it took us about 20 years to get to that article. Right. So in your article, you discuss uh, something you call applied cultural knowledge. Would you tell us a little bit more about that, please, and how the U.S. military could better leverage it for its security force assistance programs? Yeah. In looking at the literature that came out of Iraq and Afghanistan, I came to the conclusion that while we had... Um, tried to leverage culture in support of tactical uh, and operational level activities um, in the theater. We really hadn't applied culture to security force assistance, maybe to looking at, you know, kind of the mechanics of security force assistance, about the need to create rapport, the importance of relationships and the like. But we didn't really apply it to the task of building you know, combat effective units, which is really the bottom line, what security forces, security force assistance is all about. And to the degree that we did write about it, we, the applied subtext of the literature was that basically foreign armies have to become more like us. They have to build a strong NCO Corps um, and they have to fight like us. Um, and, you know, based on Ken and I, you know, Ken, the research that Ken and I have done, 
you know, kind of, we came to the conclusion that wasn't going to work. Right. And let me build off Mike's last point there by saying, you know, on the one hand, there is at any given point in time, a set of best practices, what works best in combat. Um, but on the other hand, we all know that not every military performs all of those best practices. In fact, pretty much no military performs all of them. And different militaries have different styles. They fight in different ways. And there are reasons for that, right? Every military comes to these things differently. They, they are created by their society. And their societies, you know, equip them in certain ways. It allows them to be stronger in one area, weaker in another area. And rather than just go to another military, exactly as Mike is saying, and say, you know, you need to do things our way. Right? not recognizing that our society has equipped us and created our military to do things in certain ways with certain strengths and weaknesses and just say to another military, become like us, we need to start thinking about, okay, what do their societies equip them to do? What are their strengths and weaknesses? And how do we help them get as close as they can to the best practices given the strengths and weaknesses they derive from their societies? Right. Um so also in your article, you offer four recommendations for revamping our approach to security force assistance. Would you mind sharing those recommendations with our listeners now? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll take the first two and then Mike can take the, the, the next two. Um, so the first, the most obvious, I think the best known way to, to, to deal with this uh, set of issues is by creating small elite forces. Right? This is what the U.S. has mostly learned to do over the last 20 years. We create elite forces, picked forces where we can ideally pick out the best soldiers and officers from a larger military, the ones with the most desirable, best military skills, right? Put them in small elite units, hopefully give them specialized training, even special forces training that will further take advantage of that. And as we did with the Iraqi counterterrorism service, as we've also helped to do with things like the Jordanian special forces or the pretty much the entire United Arab Emirates military, at least much of it, right? It allows you to create a small force with some greater capabilities that allows you to do some things with it. So that's one way of overcoming the, the limitations of these culturally derived problems for our militaries. A second way, though, is to, to go back to this issue that Mike and I were both talking about in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of different armies, right? So the Arab armies, yes, there's no question of the last 75 years, their society has created a lot of problems for them in terms of how warfare has been waged. But there are also some real strengths there. There are some things that they do better and things that they do worse. So typically Arab armed forces better at doing static defensive operations, much worse at doing unstructured maneuver warfare better at doing ground-based air defenses, much worse at doing air superiority, air supremacy, uh, whether offensive, defensive, counter-air missions like that, right? So you can think about structuring military operations where you're asking the Arab partner forces to handle those missions, take on those aspects of a wider campaign that they do better not ask them to do the things that they don't do as well. Hopefully you've got more capable partner forces like American forces that can take care of those missions. The third thing we could do is um, by structuring our military forces to take advantage of social solidarities that are kind of in, inherent in, in various Arab societies. So for instance, 
Arab militias have often punched uh, above their weight. And one of the reasons why we think they have done so is because they often draw on these kind of solidarities. So, for instance, whereas conventional Arab armies and, and, and Western armies take people from throughout the society and create a band of brothers, the militias take a band of brothers and build a militia around them. So you have people who are, you know, family members, cousins, kids who grew up in the same quarter um, or from the same region of the country. So um, that in, they use social solidarities to enhance um, unit cohesion and, and, and motivation. So that's problematic, though, because you're getting into mucking around with the manpower system of foreign militaries. But, you know, look, the, the British Army had a regimental system. We have the National Guard where, you know, these Western armies use local solidarities in order to enhance union esprit and the like. So it, it is potentially doable. The fourth, the fourth um, uh, you know, uh, factor is creating a military subculture that um, force, fosters militarily desirable skills as a result of education. So we use the example of the Jordanian Arab Legion, which created Arab Legion schools in the 20s and 30s that took young Bedouin kids, 10 years old and older, older um, immersed them in um, uh, an educational process using British teachers or British trained teachers, trained them in British ways. So they were socialized in a different uh, system and they created the Arab Legion, which was a, in its day a formidable uh, fighting force. Um, and the UAE you know, military has done something similar. So this is, this is another approach, but of course it's very difficult to scale up when you're talking about a very, very large military. Right, yeah. Well, Mike, Ken, thank you so much for sharing your time your insights and your recommendations with us. We wish you the best of luck in your future research. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.